What's up, church? Man, everybody's got to be excited about a Labor Day weekend, and so uh, I know I am. I can't wait to preach and then get out of here and go home. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, today is going to be an awesome day. We're wrapping up a series called Exiled, uh, a walk through First Peter. We actually took uh, 10 weeks, and so this is the 10th week for all of those that uh, joined us over the summer. Uh, we hope that it's been challenging, uh, but also we hope that it's equipped you in God's Word to understand uh, what it was that this church uh, was dealing with there uh, in the area of Rome and, and other provinces nearby where Christians were running for their lives because of the persecution and the hostility they were facing. And yet you got a guy like Peter who says, I want you to keep the faith. I want you to keep, uh, I want you to keep living honorable and noble lives in the midst of persecution. I want you to live such lives that please God that even people will accuse you of doing wrong that one day they will see your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. And then we see that uh, through uh, first, uh, chapter 4 and, and following, that there's going to be suffering, there's going to be hardship. And, and the bottom line is, is that that's really what encompasses the Christian life. But God does something for us in the church. And you're going to see it today sandwiched in between a couple of things. And one, he's going to give us something within the church that helps us in the midst of our suffering and the attacks of the enemy. And believe it or not, Contrary to what most of you think about pastors, because I know all the pastor jokes, I get it, okay? Uh, you think we only work one day a week, et cetera, okay? And, uh, but today, this message is for you, to show you through the scriptures that we work far more than one day a week. Matter of fact, I'll go on record and say we, mo- we outwork most of you in this room, okay? No, I'm just kidding. That's just what the scripture says, okay? But let me pray for us, and uh, we're going to dive into this text, and we're going to take a look at, really, um, Peter's commission and call to the church, and, and really what the structure of a church should look like by definition of the scriptures and not our own traditions, okay? So let's dive in. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We ask, God, that you would take this time and that you would use it, um, the Lord, to teach us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would... Um, help us, God, to line our views, uh, not with the views of, uh, of uh, those who've come before us, not with the views of those who uh, ultimately have helped establish the own traditions in our lives, not with the views of the denominations that we've been a part of or the churches that we've been a part of, but God, may we just align ourselves with you and the standard of which you set forth in your word. And God, may we recognize um, what it is that you are calling the church to do and be. And so God, I pray that we would uh, lead by that example, and may you be the chief shepherd that is in charge of it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in First Peter um, chapter 5, if you look at verse 1 through 4, you're going to see a few things. Number one, in just a second, you're going to see a title, a title of a role within the local church. Then you're going to see a, a definition of that title, and then you're going to see the responsibilities thereof that basically are placed on that title and the judgment that follows from God. And so the reason I say all this is so that you understand what it should be that you're looking for within the context of a local church. Maybe you're a first-time guest here, maybe you're a third or fifth-time guest here, and you go, you know what, there's some things about Stone Point that intrigue me, but I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a little bit confused. You know, how do you guys set yourself up? And in church words, you call that polity, church polity, which is the structure of the church, the uh, the way that a church works. And so here you're going to see the polity set forth in Scripture and the way that an autonomous local church should work. Now, a local church is meant to be autonomous. It's autonomous, one, 
okay? It's not a plurality. It's not denominationally set up. Now, we are a part of the kingdom of God. There's one church, the body of believers, Christ the head, we are the body. But within the, the congregations that God allows us to have, you should have autonomous bodies. That doesn't mean that you can't have plurality of churches coming together. It doesn't mean that you can't have denominations. It doesn't mean any of that. It means that that's not how God set it up. The way that God set it up was much more simple than that. And here's how it goes. You ready? So verse 1. So I exhort the elders. I exhort the elders. Exhortation is an encouragement. I exhort you. I encourage you. And then it says elders. Now the question is, is what are elders? Now elders in this context is a word called pres, uh, presbyteros, which literally means to be seasoned, advanced, mature men. And it means that those guys are to be leading local congregations. And they're to be leading them with, as a plurality of overseer. now, overseers. Now, every time you see the word elders, you're never going to see it in the singular format. It's never going to be the elder of the church, meaning that the church is not ever supposed to be systematically set up that you have one man that is ultimately the chief guy in charge, okay? So now you might see our title here. So I'm going to kind of address some things, you know, practically. You see my title, my title here at Stone Point is to be lead pastor. You could be a pastor, you could call a senior pastor or whatever, but there is not a single decision that I've ever made here that was not without a, at least a plurality of men. And so we always have a plurality of men that help lead and make decisions for our church. And those men are men that are seasoned, mature, advance, not necessarily in age, but in maturity, Christ-likeness, that they should be making decisions for the best cause of the entire church, the body, that are what? Godly, Christ-like. And so here it is, you got Peter, he goes, I exhort the elders, these presbyters of the church, these decision makers, these mature men of the church, and I exhort them that are among you as a fellow elder. Now, Peter says, as a fellow elder. He doesn't say, as the chief elder. Now, think about this. Peter is a guy in which God would systematically use to help in the development of the church. But he doesn't put himself arrogantly up on a pedestal and say, I am the chief elder in which all the others are elders underneath me. What he does is he says, I exhort the elders among you as in which I am a fellow elder. I am one of them. I am one of those. And so he's going to elevate himself. And here's why. Because Pastors, shepherds, overseers, sometimes you'll see the word bishop in the church, whatever. That's all coming from these same words, to be presbyters. That's the idea. There are men within the local church that help lead the body forward. Now, you'll see in just a second, after we get past the title part, about what it is that their job description entails. But here it is. These men are to be a witness of the suffering of Christ. Now, that can be a confusing word because here it is, Peter's writing it. But interesting enough, in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you never see any single picture of Peter actually being present at the crucifixion scene. So the question is, is that what he means when he writes this? He goes, hey, I want to exhort all the elders in which I am one, I'm a fellow elder, and I want you to understand I'm a witness of the suffering of Christ. Now the question is, is, is he talking about he was a witness to the actual event there? 
and we don't know. I mean, you could speculate that maybe Peter saw it from a distance. I would think that he probably did, but I don't think that's what he means here. What I do think is that he understands what it is that Christ did, and he takes that same mentality as an elder within the church. For instance, an elder partakes in the suffering of Christ. They identify and they witness with it. Meaning that if you have an elder or an overseer or a pastor or anyone that's leading the local church and they are hungry for power, they are dogmatic, they are egocentric, they are all about themselves and they seem to not listen to anyone else, that probably is a red flag. Now the question is, is why is it a red flag? Because ultimately, shouldn't you let a pastor kind of lead the church? And I think yes, but here's the why it's a red flag. is because if you, as a pastor, as an overseer, as a presbyter of the church, identify with Christ, what do you do? Christ said, I didn't come to what? To be served. I came to serve. And I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So if you don't look at the elders within the local body, an autonomous church, as men who will willingly lay them li- their lives down in order that the entire church succeeds, then you probably have the wrong guys. Get the picture? That's what he's saying. And then he goes on. He goes, not only should they identify with the sufferings of Christ as a witness, but they should also as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, this is an interesting statement to me, and I think it's really important that you understand. And a partaker. Now, Christ ultimately died. He gave his life uh, through death. He, he didn't come to serve, but he served. He gave his life as a ransom for many. He willingly laid his life down for his friends. Now, y'all get that, right? Now, what's interesting is, is this is the question. When does Jesus receive the glory that he deserves? Because it's not in his death. Think about it. In his death, he was spit upon. He was rejected. He was cursed. He was afflicted. His beard was ripped out. They placed on him a crown of thorns. Do you understand the suffering in which he went through for you and I? Get that? It's a magnitude of suffering in which you and I come in and we sing about and we give him glory, right? Like we raise our hands, we sing, we give him glory. But glory is not revealed until after suffering. Understand? Like, think about it. A Super Bowl champion is not crowned until they've beaten their body into submission for 16-plus games and then go into the playoff, and they win three more games and then ultimately the Super Bowl. So you got a 20-game span in which they get up every single morning in the week. They go, they work out. They, every athlete beats his body into submission. Every racer runs to get a prize, right? But you don't get glory until you've had hard work. Get the picture? So what the point of this narrative is, and this is what you and I should see, is that those who partake in the glory of God to be revealed, whether they be in the church, but ultimately also as leaders within the church, they they shouldn't expect glory now. They should expect glory to come. So if you have leaders who want all the glory now, that's probably another red flag. So what, what Peter's trying to help us realize is that those who are the presbyteros of the church, those who are the presbyters, who are leading the church, advancing it forward, should be men that are marked by dying to themselves over and over and over again. They should not be men who need lots of accolades, lots of glory. They 
they shouldn't desire to have a crown from you because ultimately getting a crown from you within the church means that they neglect and ultimately forfeit the crown from the chief shepherd, and which is the one which most shepherds should be what? Running for. And he goes, and you don't get those unless you die to yourself. You don't get those unless you're willing to suffer for a while. You don't get the unfading crown of glory, verse 4, until you have identified with Christ. And to identify with Christ is to go through hardships. It's to have your body beaten. It's to be spit upon and rejected. It is to be cursed and afflicted. It is okay if a few of your sheep bite you. It is okay if you have some hardships within the church. Why? Because Christ understands that. And when you identify with who he was and what he accomplished, then you too should stand in the gap. You too should not bail out. You should what? Shepherd the flock among you. That's verse 2. So you got the description. The description of elders there is a plurality of men who are qualified to lead the church. What are the qualifications? They're wise. They got great intellect. No, they're mature, seasoned men who are willing to suffer and to ultimately serve people. Got me? So you shouldn't look around and go, well, I think he knows the Bible better than anybody. It doesn't seem to be a qualification. It seems to be men who are humble, who are mature, who seem to be complete and understand who Christ is and are willing to identify with what Christ has accomplished. That's what you're looking for. Got it? The question is, is, okay, maybe you got the right men. The question is, are they doing the right things? That's an important part of the local body. Got this? And so in verse 2, it says, this is what a shepherd should do. You know what a shepherd is? It's an overseer. It's a presbyter of the church. Now they should shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Now what's interesting is, is what it says, is that they should shepherd the flock of God. Now whose flock is it? God's, right? Which is why I'm going to go ahead and go on record and say to all of my friends here and online, would you please quit calling Stone Point Brandon's church? Hey, Brandon, I'm going to visit your church this weekend. Well, it's not really my church. It's yeah, it's okay. Come on, though. We'll invite you. It's not, the church is not a man's entity. It is God's. It has always been God's. And if he wants to close the door tomorrow, then by God's grace, it has been a fun ride and it has been worth every ounce of effort. It is his. He can do what he pleases with it. But it does. It drives me crazy when I'm at the community. I go, hey, Brandon, will you get your church on board? What does that mean? This is God's church, okay? And so this is what you need to understand. When you start thinking about a shepherd having their own church, it's a problem. Why? Because they are accountable to a chief shepherd in which ultimately has given his life and suffered for the whole church. Globally, he has suffered, he has died. And so here it is shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So here's what it means. God does entrust local autonomous churches to pastors and shepherds to lead, and they should lead it well. They should make sure that they do a couple of things. And I think those things are pretty simple, although often not done all that well. And here they are. They should feed the sheep, and they should tend to the sheep. So the question is, what does it mean to feed sheep? Well, here's what it means. To feed sheep means that you teach them. You teach them the whole counsel of God's word, even those topics that are fairly uncomfortable like this one. 
you teach them about what is right, not upon man's standard, but God's standard, the decrees of the Lord, the statutes that we are to live by and walk by, not because those statutes save you, but because God saves you by the lifeblood of Jesus through the death, the burial, the cross of Christ, but allows you to live in him as you are discipled, made mature, all right? Complete and lacking nothing. That's to teach, to admonish, to help people evangelize, to go out and make a difference for the cause of God's glory, to nurture them to become mature. That's the goal. Like if you would look at in the church and go, I'm not growing any, that's probably a problem. I'm not being taught anything new. I don't know anything more about the Bible now than I did a year ago. That's probably a problem. Why? Because shepherds are to teach you. Like you want to walk away every week and go, wow, that was interesting. I've never heard it like that. Or wow, that was interesting. I, I learned something new today. You should always be learning something new. You should always be growing. Why? Because one of the greatest responsibilities of a shepherd is to feed their sheep, right? Think about it. We have organizations in our land today that rip away the rights of people who don't feed their animals, Right? Like some of you get extremely hostile about that. Yes, you ought, you, you ought to feel the same way when a shepherd doesn't feed a sheep within the church. Not that you should get mad, but it should be one of the criteria in which you look at a healthy church. What's interesting is I never mentioned anything about music. Music is not a governing agent as to whether or not you should be at the church. It's just not. This is one. The other one is they should tend to the sheep. So what does it mean? Tending to the sheep means that you don't merely feed. Now, some of you cattle guys out here will understand this. A good cattle guy thinks they're a good cattle guy when they go and they just take a bale of hay and they put it out in the pasture and they never check on their cows again, right? No, all they're doing is feeding. They're not tending. Tending means that there's delicate care to the flock beyond just feeding. And we oftentimes, we think, that we're doing an okay job within the church and ultimately as shepherds as long as we, what, feed, right? But there's more to being a shepherd than just feeding. It's caring, it's tending. So caring, what do you do? You care when a sheep feels abandoned, when they're sick, when they need to be nurtured. You, you pursue sheep that are far off and who have wandered off. You go and you get them. Jesus even gives you a great parable about that. He leaves the 99 to pursue the one. There's always a care and a nurturing that takes place beyond feeding. You not only tend by pursuing and going after, but confronting. One of the greatest jobs of a good shepherd is confronting adversaries, wolves and prey and anything that would desire to take over your flock. One of the greatest things that you need in a shepherd is one who is willing to stand firm on some concrete things and to not waver. I would say that one of the greatest things, my responsibilities now as one of our plurality of leaders here in our church, a handful of men that help lead our church forward is to defend our church from wolves. We have no time for factions, quarrels, or dissension. We have no time for sins that keep continuing to run amok in us. We, we have to look at those things. We should pres what, preserve the unity of the body. And so that means that we fend off things that bring about disunity. 
We make sure to protect our sheep. That's the goal. We also want to provide a place of shelter, a place from the storms, a place in which you can find encouragement and comfort. You want to keep people moving forward too, always taking the flock to greener pasture and more still waters. Do you see this? So think about it. Think about the local church now. Think about what you've been involved in at some point in your life. You think, local church, man, I can't wait to get out of bed and go. Oh, my kids are so excited. No, if, if they slept in and you had to drag them out of bed today, they're failing to see the importance of the local church. They think it's stagnant. They think it's frail. They think it's dumb. They're bored. That's probably a problem. And you could go, well, they're just kids, okay? That's probably part of it too. But if you feel the same way about it as your kids do, that's probably a problem because the church shouldn't be stale and it shouldn't, it should always be moving forward. Got the picture? That's what shepherds do. And then it continues to say, so this is what they do. This is who they are. They are a group, a plurality of men who lead the church forward, who, who tend to the sheep, who feed the sheep. And then how do they do that? What's the description? How is it birthed out? And here's a handful of other things that are really important, okay? So here it is. Look at verse 2, the latter part of it. As they do these things, as they shepherd God's flock among them, they should do it by exercising oversight. Now, they exercise oversight by what? Not under compulsion, but willingly. It's not a laborious task that they're unwilling to do. If you have a shepherd who's continually complaining about the work of a shepherd, then that could possibly be something that could concern you. Why? Because the idea of a shepherd is shepherding God's flock even if they're not getting paid well. Even if they don't get paid at all. That's the idea. You, you don't do it under compulsion. It's not like, I, the only reason I have this job is because it's better than a job at Home Depot, okay? That's a bad reason to shepherd the church. Understand? The reason you shepherd God's church is because you're called to it and because there's nothing else in this world that you'd rather do. Now, not every local congregation can pay a pastor in which they don't have to have another job. But that pastor should long to pastor this church far more than they should ever want to go to this other job. That's the idea, that even if you couldn't pay me, you're going to have to pry me away from the local church. That's what it talks about. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Meaning, they don't pastor the church for sordid gain. They're not there collecting watches for extra benefit to cash into the gold place this afternoon. They're not there for sordid gain. They're not trying to find ways to manipulate the church for more money. They're not trying to eventually build an empire. They're to shepherd the church. They're not doing it for any other gain for them. That does not mean that you shouldn't take care of your pastors. I'm not going to take a long time of that because you guys take care of us. We do not live exorbitantly. We do not make much money. We don't need to because God provides. But the bottom line is the goal is not to build individual empires. The goal is to make the body strong. They should not be, verse 3, domineering over those in your charge. So a, a pastor should not be a jerk. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about weak, feeble, and passive. Because think about it this way. If you have a lion coming to eat your sheep, do you want frail, passive shepherd? No, what do you want? 
you want a, st- a shepherd that's willing to raise his force a little bit. To, to, hey, to, to get off into your stuff if you need them, right? But they shouldn't be a jerk to the sheep. Now, I don't have a problem being a jerk to the enemy, okay? If you're messing with my sheep, you better back off. I have no problem hitting a wolf over the head with a, a staff, but you shouldn't hit your sheep. Got it? That's the best picture I can give you. Now, some of you should be hit. But that's when a mature man walking in the humility of Christ says, I'm going to exercise self-control here. And that's what you should. But listen, and I say that kind of joking, but listen, I have worked for more pastors than not that when you cross them, you got something angry and mean and, and dissentious. And it was almost like you saw something that behind closed doors you wouldn't see. And that's not cool. You got me? And I'm, I'm not a, I just, I'm, you might see me as a jerk because I do say no to a handful of things. Like I know where our church is going and I'll say no to anything that tries to keep us off course. But the bottom line is this, I always want to do it politely. And I always want to explain to people the reason that we're not doing it is not because I don't want to do it. It's just I know it's not the best for our body. And we've created some standards that are clear objectives that keep us moving on track so that we're taking our sheep the place that God wants us to go, green pastures and still waters. We know where our map is, and we try to stay on track with that. But the bottom line is what I'm saying is, is that sometimes you get pastors who are mean. And, and God says, no, you should, through, through Peter's words, you should watch out for that. They shouldn't be domineering over their charge, but they should be examples of the flock. Now, I want you to understand what he's saying here is this, is that that you should not see a pastor who promotes himself or elevates himself. That, I think, is really important. You don't see within the local congregation of a New Testament church a hierarchy. You don't have a structure in which the people are less than a shepherd. You just have different callings. You have some who are called to what teach, some that are called to admonish. You have some that are called to reprove. You have, I mean, you have different people and different roles, but the bottom line doesn't make me less than or more than. At the same time, don't call me just a preacher because I'm not a preacher, I'm a pastor. I don't just teach the word and then I'll, I'll go about my day. Like that's not the only assignment I have this week. No, I want to protect our church. I want to cast vision for our church. I want to keep us on track. I want to make sure we're moving forward. I want to make sure that people are discipled and trained or being grown up. And that's the goal of a church, to be moving forward. Got me? And so he goes, that's what you should do. Now, I, I don't say that call me a pastor because somehow that elevates me. I don't, if you don't give me the title pastor, that's okay. The bottom line, that's who I am. God gave me the role of pastoring and shepherding our church so that what we would do is protect, feed, nurture, care for, not being domineering, but to be examples to help move our entire body forward. Got me? And then you go, well, I think I may want to be a pastor. If that is you, then praise God. But I'll tell you this. Don't be a pastor if there's something else in the world you'd rather do. Okay? If you dream about something else, don't get into ministry. Why? Because something else will not cause the suffering and the hurt that sometimes a pastoring or shepherding will. At the same time, here's the greatest reason. And this is why I have 
The problem with the local church polity, polity, a fancy word for hierarchy or structure of the local church that many of us see, okay? I have a problem with it, not because of I've been bit by it, I have a problem with it scripturally, and here's why. I do not understand why so many churches take plumbers, irrigation guys, and coaches, and they put them on a panel in which is charged to pastor the church. And when I mean by that, I'm not talking that they teach the church on Sunday morning. I'm talking they call all the shots. That doesn't make sense to me, and here's why. Because the people that do that don't understand what God has called them to do, but more than that, the worst part of all of it is verse 4, the judgment that comes from doing such things. So look at it. You want to call yourself a pastor? Okay. But you don't, get, you don't become a pastor by printing something off of the internet. Got me? You don't get a pastor because you can do a wedding or a funeral. Anybody here can do that if you'd like. You become a pastor when you tend to God's body under the judgment of God, realizing what he's going to hold you accountable to, verse 4. So here it is. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So when the chief shepherd that is the one who allows us to have the opportunity to tend to this flock. When he appears, then you're going to be accountable. You're going to be accountable to how well you've done. And that's when you have the chance to receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the same thing that Paul wrote to Timothy. And I love this. You'll see it every now and then at a saint's funeral. You'll hear it. 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. You've heard it before. Maybe not, but in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness with the Lord. The righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also those who have longed for his appearing. So there's a crown for all of the saints. There's a crown. The question is, what is that crown? Now, there's two words in oftentimes the Greek or in the scriptures that you'll see. You'll see a crown. It's a diadem. You'll even hear about it, an old hymn, royal diadem. And that is a, a crown that is made out of gold or it has lots of ornamental and very in, impressive jewels on it. That's not the crown that you and I get. The crown that you and I get and the crown that shepherds would get is a crown that is a Stephanos, which is one that after going into strict training, beating your body into submission and running the race and then ultimately finishing the race, you are crowned with kind of a leafy ornamental thing, nothing fancy. But it's just simply saying, you have kept the faith. You have fought the good fight. You have finished the race. Now, what's interesting about the Christian life, and I don't think we have this one down, is that when we go into competing, you and I are never competing against each other, ever. Which I think of the problem with the local church. We're never competing with one another. We're not competing for bigger congregations. We're not competing for more accolades, although I think we are sometimes. That's not the goal. Our goal is to finish our own race well. That's it. Like, isn't it incredible burden? Take all the burden off you, all the pressure. Man, I can't go to Stone Point, man. There's a bunch of hypocrites there. Yes, including you. Including me. One day we will be judged adequately and fairly, judiciously, by the chief shepherd. And he's going to judge us in the way in which we lead this church. Which is awesome. Because it means I don't care how you judge me. At the end of the day, I'm going to be judged by him. So what does that mean? It means two things. Number one, it's a comfort to me because I don't have to listen too much to you, right? 
I say that jokingly, that every member here has an opinion in which goes. And and if you can say it in a way in which you exercise self-control and use scripture, I am not only more than willing to listen, but we may move that direction. But here's the other great thing, and it goes to you, is that if God's called us to lead and he's going to hold me accountable, then you don't have to worry about that. But ultimately, your worry for not giving to the church or not serving should not be tied to some part of leadership. How many times have you heard that before? Well, I ain't giving because all they want is my money and they may run off to Cancun with it. That's not your problem. Think about it. The one who judges rightly and expeditiously and will not miss it. He says, I'll take care of him. Isn't that an awesome comfort to the church? It is to me. That's why I love the fact that God, he will judge those who do not rightly divide the word. He will judge those who do not care for the flock, who do not confront divisions in the body. He will judge those who do not move the church forward. That's his job. Got me? Praise God for that. So the question is, how do we take the spotlight off of a shepherd and put it back onto the sheep? Well, I love that he does that here in verse 5. So here it is, y'all. This is talking about you. So we've been talking about us. And just real quickly, if you go, I'm looking for that in a local church, but I don't see it, and I don't see it here, then by all means, you should look for that in a local church. And you should be looking for strong shepherds far more than you should your own music preference. You should be looking for strong shepherds far more than you should whether or not they have Sunday school or small groups that meet in homes. You should be looking for that far more than you should your own agenda. Got me? Makes sense. Why? Because it's scriptural. So now let's put it on to you. Verse 5, likewise, you who are younger. Now, this could be particularly speaking of those who are younger in age, but it's also in in terms of maturity. Now, listen, what that means is, is that as the church grows, you should be looking to add to a plurality of elders. And I'll tell you, one of the things at Stone Point is this, that in in the coming years, we will be looking to add to a plurality of elders, meaning that we'll be looking to add additional men to our team to help lead and advance our church. Why? Because it takes other men that are currently paid, staff people, and it gives them the opportunity to to do ministry within local areas, and they're not having to worry about moving the church forward in terms of areas of theological matters or even areas that pertain to fiscal responsibilities or just direction. So we want to add to the plurality. The question is is this, how, how do you get them? So Do you go by younger guys? Do you find the youngest guys you can, the most immature people? No. The most young and immature people should be subject to the elders. Now, that's not saying that you're not mature, and it's not saying that you're young. What it is saying is that when you look at an elder and someone's to put them on a stage, you ought to be able to say, they're the real deal. And it shouldn't be something that a group of people, a little mob of people gets together and they go, you know what, we're going to select this guy because he's, He's going to help us advocate for more hymns. Or, hey, he's going to help us get choir robes back, you know. That's what happens when the congregation gets together. You you elect men, not based off of their maturity to look like Christ, but you elect men based off of their ability to get something done for a sect of people. Got it? Ever seen it? Here's what I mean by that. When you find a mature man, that younger people should look to, mature marks. You look and you see men who are not about themselves, who do not have egos, 
and who serve with humility, and they do not promote factions. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a church where something went awry, okay? A split, lots of division, lots of chaos, lots of arguing, lots of factions. Let me ask you a question. Was it because they were too Christ-like? No, it was because even though they were old, they were immature. That's what it means. So look at it. Be subject to elders, then clothe yourselves. And the word clothe there is the Greek word that means a slave, as if he's putting on his apron, ready to serve. It's almost a, a bond servant, do loss, ready to serve. And it says, clothe yourselves, all of you, all of us, not just me, you, everybody, a part of the flock, with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so I just want to go on record and say this. We are not prideful people as a result of being too Christ-like. You are prideful because of the result of the fall and because we align ourselves way too close to our sin patterns. We're not prideful because we, we are mature and lacking nothing. It's not because we're complete. We're prideful because we're immature and we're lacking the grace to humble ourselves and consider others better than ourselves. Humility comes when we are willing to perform the lowest and the smallest services for Jesus' sake alone. And that's what you're looking for, for a plurality of men to lead your church. And that's also what you and I in the body should be wanting to exemplify. Factions, dissensions, and quarrels do not come because there's too much humility in the church. Got me? So when you begin to hear a stir of factions and quarrels and dissensions, when the church is about to split over the color of a carpet, no one has asked, what would Christ do in this, and how do I look more like him? Nobody's asked that question. Understand? What they have asked is, why did I give $5,000 and it didn't go to that color? Understand? I'm just talking practically. It has nothing to do with Christ-centeredness. So therefore, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Now I'll tell you, and I'm going to read this so you hear it. If you're willing to be nothing, God will make something of you. In, in the church, God has designed it so that the way to go up is to start down. Got me? The way to be first is to be last. The way to be someone is to be no one. Interesting enough, those who believe themselves to be the most talented, the most knowledgeable, the most ambitious to be someone will frequently end up being a nobody. And that is definitely the case here. If you come up to me and the first line is, I was an elder at my other church. I was a deacon at my other church. I don't know how you want me to respond. Because number one, we don't have deacons. And number two, if you're ever going to be an elder here, you won't have to explain it to me it will be crystal clear. And the greatest elders start with nothing. They are the ones who are doing the things that the church should have done when no one sees it. And it's easy to see. Understand? It is the ones who they start out by parking a car and by cleaning toilets. And before too long, you hadn't asked them, but they've grown to a place in which you look and they're discipling a handful of men. And not only are they discipling a handful of men, somehow they've weaseled their way into hospital visits and they're caring for people. 
And you look up, and they're the one who's calling meals to people, and you're like, dude, how did you even learn about this? And you just look up, and you just go, no one's noticed it, but you're the real deal. That's how it happens. That's how it happened in the New Testament church. The congregation to get together and go, hey, this is how it happened. It started with humility, and they ultimately were grown into a position by God. Got me? Now, I told you earlier there was a sandwich, and I'm going to close with this. You ready? There was a sandwich, and here's what it was. At the end of, first, the end of chapter 4, all Christians are going to suffer. Verses 5 through, or 1 through 4 in, in chapter 5 said, in the midst of your suffering, there's going to be a handful of people. They're going to be shepherds. They're going to care for you. They're going to nurture you. And you need to know that in the last part of this chapter, there is one who is looking in your suffering to attack you, to devour you, to deceive you. And that's why you need the chief shepherd and other shepherds. And this is what it means. And in verse 7, it says, Now cast all your anxieties upon him, speaking of us as the church. Why? Because he cares for you. That means that God is attentive to every need. And then it says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, and he's looking for someone to devour. He wants to eat you. Like the enemy never has the best interest for you. Understand? He wants you to be devoured. Then it says, verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Now, here's what I'm going to add. I'm going to close with, and I want you to hear it very well. As Christians, the reason we need each other and the reason that you have a local autonomous body in which there is a community and a gathering of people is so that when the enemy does come in the midst of your suffering, you have a group of people who have protected you, cared for you, nurtured you, fed you, clothed you, strengthened you, so you are not easily overcome. And you resist the devil. Now, interesting enough, resisting does not mean running from. You never, ever, ever, ever run from him. You always stand firm, Ephesians 6. And if you'll stand firm, he'll run from you. So here's the deal. I want to just mark this. I'm going to close with it. If you go, Pastor, man, man, he's just been working me over. It seems like Satan's got my name down and he won't leave me alone. Here's what that probably means. It probably means that you've not entrusted yourself to God near as much as you should. I'm not saying that the enemy won't attack you, and I'm not saying that you won't suffer, but your ability to handle suffering is directly tied to two things. Number one, the word, and to the local body. James 4, 7, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You cannot resist the devil if you are not entrusting yourself to God. Understand? And you cannot believe the lie that I am entrusting myself to God if I am not attached to the local body and I am being cared for by a shepherd who really does love me and a group of plurality of men who's pressing me to move forward. Got the picture? And because I love you so much, I'm going to let you read the rest of it. Got me? So that we can sing one more song praising God for the shepherd that he is. And so in verse 9, 10, 11, it's just going to talk to you about who Christ is and that although you suffer for a little while, hey, God has called you to eternal glory. What he means is this. After all this is said and done, he says, if I started to work in you, I'm going to carry it into completion. And so you need to know that I've not forgotten you. I've not abandoned you. I've not left you. You are going to suffer some. That's why you have a plurality of leaders to help stay focused. That's why you have the flock to care for you and nurture you and move you forward. But don't you forget that God will eventually, because he's the chief shepherd, make all things right. So keep your focus. Don't be easily distracted. 
to be joyful about all things and all circumstances, James 1, and to press on for the cause of Christ and run your race well. Not because you're competing against the person next to you, because you're competing against your own self. And when you believe the lie that you're competing against everyone else here, man, wow, you'll never win. Because our only goal, our only aim is to be like Christ. Amen? And hopefully not like the person sitting next to you. Got me? Because if the standard is your person next to you, or if your standard is me, wow, you're going to be way off the mark. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We pray, God, that you would take a faithful word from a guy like Peter and you would use it for your glory, God. And I pray that you would help us to go into strict training. And, Lord, that we would be purified in word and deed, Lord, in our, compare, uh, in our character, God. Would we reflect the glory of God in all things that we do? God, we know that you are worthy of our praise and adoration. And we pray, God, that you are glorified in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.